so this event today is really the first event linked to the 2010 yearbook, which will be on the topic of global justice. So uh, I would be grateful to Fiona, as the managing editor, if she could say a little bit about the yearbook, its history, <laughs> its development, and the present issue, which is being launched next week, which is on poverty. So, Martin, thank you very much. Um, just rather than you sitting there uh, waiting for some of our speakers, we thought we'd just introduce this series of events. This is the first event in the Global Civil Society events program this term. Um, and this program is linked to a research program at the Centre for Study of Global Governance, as Martin said, which involves teaching, research and dissemination. Um, and the series begins with this event. Um, and the main output of it is something called the Global Civil Society Yearbook. Um, the next edition of which is on poverty and activism and comes out on the 6th of May. This is actually last year's event, uh, last year's book sorry, that I'm holding up. Uh, I haven't actually yet got hold of the copies of the new edition. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the series uh, briefly of events this summer because it's, got a little, it's a little bit different to how we normally would do it. Um, alongside um, the, uh, uh, the yearbook, as I say, themed on poverty and produced in collaboration with the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, we have an exhibition which is currently in the Atrium Gallery um, on representations um, of poverty. Um, and there are various events uh, linked to that. Um, as I say, the launch event uh, for the book and for the exhibition is uh, next Wednesday, uh, the 6th. It comprises a panel discussion, um, and followed by a reception and opening, a formal opening of the exhibition. And you can see the theme uh, there is about constructions um, of the idea of poverty. Um, the speakers seem to have fallen off, but the speakers are um, David Campbell, who's a professor of geography at Durham University, uh, Sally Stairs, who's in the uh, Methodology Institute here, who's contributed a chapter to this yearbook, um, um, and professor from the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, Ashwami Kumar, who's an editor-in-chief, and it will be chaired by um, Mary Caldor from the centre. This event is um, free and open to all, all the events are. If you'd like to come to the reception, there are some cards outside. Um, take one of these. Uh, this is the reception launch. You just have to send me an RSVP so we can keep track of numbers, but feel free to cut yourself to those. Uh, this is the front cover of the new uh, yearbook, which I say will be released um, for sale next week. This is the exhibition. The exhibition is actually on for six weeks, so you've got time to view it. Uh, it's open every day from 10 to 6 in the gallery, and obviously it's free entry, um, and you can also go and visit it at weekends. Um, just a little bit of information about um, what it's about and why we did it. We commissioned new work from photographers, artists in uh, five cities, and they have given us their uh, impression of poverty um, in those cities, which are London, New York, Mumbai, Istanbul, and Shanghai. And it's a combination of traditional photographs and also multimedia presentations. So the events um, attached to this program comprise two panel discussions uh, and also what's called Talking Pictures. That's a series we're doing in conjunction with LSE Arts and it's where artists in this case, um, but sometimes curators, come and speak about their work and their illustrated talks. Uh, and there's five or six of those going on this term. And there's more information about all of those um, in this booklet here, which you'll find around the school, or you can help yourself from here. There are two panel discussions, as I mentioned, and this is uh, the first one um, in conjunction with the uh, um, LSE archives. And then uh, this event 
At this event, in fact, um, you can see the diversity of the speakers. Renzo Martins is an artist um, from Belgium who will be showing an extract from his film, which is uh, quite controversial. It's called Enjoy Poverty. He'll be speaking the next day and showing the film in full. Um, it's about an hour, an hour and 20 minutes um, on, the, on the 4th of June. That's part of the Talking Pictures series. I think that's all I want to Thank say. Thank you uh, very much, Fiona. Uh, what I'm going to do now is to ask our two speakers who are here if they wouldn't mind taking their seats rather than just standing in the wings. It's not very polite to stand in the wings. And I'm going to ask Matty Cahonan to say a few words about the book for which this event is the effectively a launch. So 
things that the rest of us don't know about, and he's putting that to good use in his work with the Tax Justice Network, where he was a founder in 2002. John, uh, thank you very much for coming. I will also introduce Felicity uh, Lawrence as well. Felicity may, in fact, be very well known to you for her books on the food industry. Indeed, she is probably the, the leading exposer of the practices of the food industry and the global sourcing of uh, the products that we have on our shelves. And she's exposed this in two books and in her regular columns in the, in the Guardian. But most recently, and one of the reasons I'm particularly delighted that she's here, of course, is that she has leapt to fame with front page bylines in The Guardian on the tax haven issue. There was a wonderful series that lasted over a week in The Guardian, and an enormous amount of work went into it by Felicity and, and others. And I thought it was a, a remarkable contribution um, and, and, and brought the issues to a very much wider audience. So, John Felicity, thank you very much for being here. Uh, John, would you like to kick off? You've got sort of like eight, ten minutes. And of course, we're, we're all open for questions. The whole point of these occasions is to have questions and answers. Good. Um, well, first of all, thank you very much indeed um, for the invitation. I can reassure you the other speakers are in the House, but the Minister, speaking at the previous event, turned up rather late after a... Uh, a vote in the Commons on um, MPs' expenses, uh, so that event is dragging on slightly. But they, don't worry, they are on their way. Um, Martin, you're not alone in finding my career... Oh, here they are, in fact. You're not alone in finding my career a bit, a bit mysterious. My mother's still trying to under understand my illustrious career as an economist. I'm, in fact, a development economist, worked with Oxfam uh, in, in um, many southern countries, um, became mystified by the whole issue of... Uh, tax havens and their role in financial markets in the early 1980s, went home to my island of Jersey to, um, to uh, research what was going on, and to my amazement, and I'm still amazed about it, was recruited as the economic advisor to the government. Um, then what happened is I left Jersey in 1998 and worked for SOAS, uh, at the School of Oriental and African Studies, for uh, six or seven years uh, as a researcher working on political risk, but always wanting to take this forward. And it was Oxfam that really kicked, kicked off the, uh, the, the interest of NGOs in tax havens and their, their, their work on development. Um, as a development economist, I'd just like to draw your attention to this extraordinary, I think very interesting uh, data from Central Intelligence Agency uh, sources, looking at GDP per capita. As a development economist, it's quite clear, if you are looking for a development strategy for your region or your island or whatever, it is quite clear the best development strategy is to become a tax haven, because this, this just looks at the top 10. If you look at the top 20 jurisdictions by GDP per capita, no less than 17 of them are tax havens. The rest are all oil exporting economies. So as a development economist, I find this an enormously troublesome um, chart which I don't show to any of my former clients. Um, <laughs> tax havens have become a major part of the global economy. In the last 30 years, they have proliferated. When, we, when the IMF enumerated tax havens back in the mid-1970s, there were 25 tax havens. We enumerated 72 in 2002-2003. Uh, we are now enumerating over 90. This is very contagious. But let me just dispel one myth. 
tax havens are not the islands in the sun or the alpine resorts where we occasionally go skiing. Some of the major tax havens are the biggest financial centres in the world. We are sitting alongside what is unquestionably the big daddy of all tax havens. London is a major offshore financial centre and a tax haven. And, of course, London has satellites across the Caribbean uh, and uh, around the European periphery. Jersey, my own island, is a major satellite of the... uh, of, the, uh, uh, of, of London's financial centre. New York, of course, is intricately linked to the Cayman Islands, but also to Delaware, Wyoming, Nevada, all of which are major tax havens in their own right. Um, so let's dispel the myth that tax havens are islands in the sun. Um, and I hate to say it, this is incredibly contagious. Um, to give you an example, in the last three years, the president of Ghana, Uh, under pressure from the uh, Barclays Bank, has committed Ghana to creating a tax haven and offshore financial centre in Accra, in the heart of a major oil exporting region, uh, and of course other minerals, um, and a centre of major dirty money flows, including huge amounts of drugs trafficking. Can you imagine how toxic uh, the secrecy space of a tax haven in the West African region would be? Um, in, In other words, we have a massive shadow economy Um, to give you some ideas of the scale, UK figures produced by Department for International Development, half of aggregate world trade passes through these tax havens. Of course, we're not talking about the trade actually passing physical goods or services being, being uh, provided through these places. This is the use of tax havens as booking centres for trade in goods and services. Um, and the, the purpose of almost all of this booking is to create elaborate structures for tax avoidance purposes. And the value of private assets held offshore, either tax-free or subject to minimal tax, is estimated at 9.2 trillion euro, 11.5 trillion dollars. Just a word of of warning about these figures. These figures are gross underestimates, and that's been confirmed to me by my former boss, Colin Powell, from Jersey Financial Services Commission, who said we have taken a very, very conservative position on our uh, estimates of uh, of private goods held in foundations, trusts, and anstalts, we have at least, at the very least, understated by a factor of uh, uh, 50%. Sorry, understated by a factor of 100%. Um, And as I said, there is a massive contagion going on in the global economy. The numbers of tax havens has more than doubled, more than 70 centres, and the process of contagion is working its way through. What's the impact on developing countries? Well, the first major impact is is illicit financial flows on a truly awesome scale. Um, Work done by colleagues of mine at uh, Amherst, uh, University of Massachusetts, um, suggests that the massive debt incurred in the past in sub-Saharan Africa um, is is part of, uh, is a result of huge capital flows out of the region, illicit capital flows, And in fact, contrary to public uh, knowledge, um, Africa is a net creditor. That sub-Saharan Africa is a net creditor to the rest of the world in the sense that illicit financial flows privatised into personal accounts held either here in London or in America or elsewhere in Europe vastly exceeds the external liabilities, that is the external debt, which has been made a public uh, liability uh, for most sub-Saharan African countries. How much? Research conducted by my colleagues um, at the Global Financial Integrity uh, and published earlier this year um, uh, puts the latest figure for illicit financial flows out of uh, the South, 
out of developing countries at somewhere between $900 billion every year to $1.06 trillion every year. The figures you have here are actually slightly out of date. If you go to the website, you'll find the latest uh, figures. Um, and alarmingly, the, uh, the rate of growth is this, this figure is actually accelerating in terms of its rate of growth. Um, contrary to many people's expectations, um, bribery and uh, embezzlement of state assets are only a very minor part of that, less than 5%. In fact, the figure is about 3%. Um, and criminal asset flows, that is, arising from uh, proceeds of crime, uh, account for somewhere ab about um, an additional 12%. The vast, no, sorry, that's wrong, about 30%, I beg your pardon. Um, the vast majority of these flows actually occur through illegal um, trade mispricing or illicit mispricing of some kind. So commercial trade mispricing forms the vast majority of the, these flows. Um, very quickly switching on to um, the uses of tax havens, I want to very quickly um, summarize interviews that I conducted in Jersey when I was there last month. Um, the first thing that all tax havens say is we are not a tax haven, uh, and in fact uh, that's what we've just heard from Jersey authorities speaking at the last event. Um, they say that Jersey and other tax havens are important conduits for capital into the major financial centres. I wouldn't dispute that. That is actually correct. The question is, is that capital licit or illicit? The vast majority, I suspect, is illicit because the vast majority is, searching, is either proceeds of criminality or is searching for some kind of tax evasion opportunity. Um, they also argue they provide a tax-neutral environment for structured finance. That sounds very good. If you read into what that means, that means that they do not uh, impose any taxation upon structured finance vehicles, which are used for the vast majority of foreign direct investment into developing countries and into developed countries as well. But it also means they, set up, they enable the setting up of very, very elaborate tax avoidance structures, which ensures not that companies uh, avoid double taxation, they ensure that companies are able to take advantage of double non-taxation. In other words, they're not taxed either where the capital originates from or where the capital is creating profits. So double non-taxation is a real problem here. They also talk about promoting tax efficiency. Bono talked about exactly the same thing when he was challenged on his tax uh, avoidance structures. Tax, tax efficiency means that I pay less tax, so you suckers pay more. Um, and we can talk about the language of this later if, you, if you're interested. The further, final thing they say, and we hear this all the time, we've just heard it from Jersey Finance at the last seminar, they promote tax competition. I'll get back to that, but let me just say from an economist's point of view, tax competition is a totally bogus construct. It doesn't belong in economic theory at all. This is a political construct, not an economic construct, because competition theory belongs to the microeconomic theory of the firm. And the idea, and I'll get back to this in a second, that countries compete with one another on tax is a madness. Um, but it's a madness that finds great um, um, <coughs> comfort in the words, in, in, in the uh, ideas of other, um, I was going to say madmen, but economists, this is the word I was looking for. On the charge side of the, the balance sheet, people like myself say that tax havens encourage and facilitate capital flight and tax evasion. They are used extensively for tax avoidance, transfer mispricing, and other abusive practices which create microeconomic distortions. Tax competition negates the whole idea of comparative advantage. It promotes beggar thy neighbor fiscal policies. It shifts the tax charge from capital onto labor and consumers. From a development economist's perspective, this is extremely 
troublesome because it means that the tax charge is being shifted from capital onto labor, raising the relative cost of labor relative to capital, leading to more intensive use of capital rather than labor. Not necessarily the best uh, development policy for a developing country with surplus labor and huge unemployment. And above all, tax havens are used to exploit gaps in regulatory frameworks. They are used for creation of extraordinarily complex structures, um, used for regulatory arbitrage. And uh, I would argue, and many of my colleagues have argued this, and now the IMF is beginning to realize this as well, that off-balance sheets, vehicles largely located in tax havens, lie at the heart of the shadow banking system, which has created the current financial crisis. Why? Because these places are so opaque. No one knows what's going on there. That is the real business they're engaged in, the creation of opacity or secrecy. The direct impacts upon development and therefore upon poor people is the loss of revenue for public expenditure programs, increased reliance on external debt, the need to offer incentives to foreign investors, typically in the form of tax holidays or something like that, uh, and conditions imposed by aid donors. It reduces investment in public goods, education, training, uh, human capital development, physical capital and infrastructure development, and research and development. It switches the tax burden between factors of production, worsening inequality, raising the costs of labor relative to capital, reducing consumption on domestic produce, and increasing imports of luxury goods and services. We can go back and over that at greater length if you want to ask me in question time. Above all, it creates, furthermore, it creates microeconomic distortions, enabling some com companies, above all multinational companies, which can take full advantage of tax havens, to act as free riders of local provision of uh, capital infrastructure and so on. Um, I just as a rider, would like to say that, in my opinion, when you engage companies on corporate responsibility agendas, the starting point for corporate responsibility lies with paying tax where it's due, when it's due, and to the full amount it's due. Further impacts on development greatly increases tax administration costs, threatens the viabilities of weaker states, Tax dodging undermines public confidence in the rule of law. As far as I'm concerned, it should be treated as a predicate crime under the UN Convention Against Corruption. It is a major crime against society and should be ranked as grand corruption because it generally involves very privileged elites. That is my experience. So in other words, this is the most toxic. Um, this has the most toxic impact on development and the victims of this so-called sport are the world's poorest. I say sport because I attended a, a very interesting forum uh, last year in Austria. I was the guest of the Austrian government. Austria, remember, is a tax haven. But as a guest at a major forum there, gave a keynote speech. And my interlocutor was the, uh, the Prince of Liechtenstein. Um, and and uh, he turned to me and said, I don't disagree with anything you just said there. But you have to remember, John, tax evasion is a sport. <laughs> Great, <laughs> wonderful stuff. <laughs> I want to now put it into a kind of more sociological framework since Martin's raised the issue, or political framework. Here you have two contrasting quotes. One taken from the Economist uh, newspaper, tax competition is the only agent of productivity for governments. It is the only competition they have. That came from a Swiss banker. That was because I challenged the Economist in a special section they wrote on, on, on the tax havens, to come up with economists who would justify the idea of tax competition. They failed totally. They came up with a Swiss banker. And we pointed out in a furious blog the following day after this was published that 
Mr. DeSocia clearly doesn't understand the real agents for ensuring that governments spend their money wisely are us, the electors, not Swiss bankers and not tax havens. It is democracy. We fight for democracy and we elect governments because it is our right as electors to determine how our governments raise their money and spend it on our behalf. Um, it is not for Swiss bankers to determine that. And Martin Wolf um, agrees with us. I want to talk very briefly about my own experience of working in Jersey, a major British satellite tax haven of, the, of uh, London. Um, and for those of you who are interested, this is a shameless plug. This book uh, elaborates in the chapter um, my experience of working in Jersey. It is not just about taxation. As soon as you create these highly secretive environments, economic environments, you create a space for criminality on a massive scale. And my experience of working in Jersey was not just tax evasion on an industrial scale, but insider trading out of the city of London on a massive scale, industrial scale. Some of my clients, so I wasn't just economic advisor, I actually worked in the financial sector. Some of my clients were major stockbrokers using offshore companies to disguise the fact that they were insider trading day in, day out. And of course, because of the secrecy arrangements, there's no way you can track them. Market rigging on a massive scale, avoiding disclosure of conflicts of interest on a massive scale, illicit arms trading, illicit political donations, contract kickbacks, bribery, and of course, fraudulent invoicing, trade mispricing, and tax evasion. In other words, what we have created on a globalized scale is what sociologists describe as a criminogenic environment, which undermines good market practice, undermines the efficiency of markets, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, it is absolutely crucial in the next steps of trying to tidy up the mess of the last 30 years of globalization that we now roll back this criminogenic environment, remove the lack of information sharing, remove this secrecy, and actually expose the markets to full transparency. Well, I've said my piece. I'll hand over now to my interlocutors, but I welcome any questions. Thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you uh, very much. Uh, there'll be many questions, I'm sure. I think we should press on. Actually, one of Felicity's books is called Eat Your Heart Out, and I think it's probably a, a very appropriate title, actually, after what John has been talking about. But that was about food. Now you're going to tell us about tax. Well, I'm not sure uh, that I should be following that uh, tremendous polemic. Um, I have a huge debt, actually, to John Christensen because he, um, he started me off on the subject of tax. And I have to confess that until um, I talked to him, I was convinced it was the most boring subject in the world. Having spent uh, six months plowing through company accounts for our Guardian investigation, um, Actually, I still think that's true. <laughs> but it unfortunately is also one of the most important in the world. Um, and, and I came to the subject actually looking at something completely different. I was in the Amazon uh, tracking one of the, uh, well, the largest private, private company in the world, the big grain trader, Cargill, uh, which is one of the three uh, transnationals that dominates global commodity trading. Uh, and whatever you've eaten today, you've almost certainly eaten something that Cargill uh, is con in control of. 
Um, and I'd been handed these shipping notes by an activist. Uh, we were trying to prove how much of the soya that was being produced from the rainforest and destruction in the rainforest was actually being shipped directly to Liverpool docks from this illegal port uh, built by cargo without full permissions in, in the Amazon. Uh, and it went straight from Liverpool in these huge ships that I was seeing loaded, arrived at Liverpool to be turned into animal feed for McDonald's and most of the British supermarkets' uh, poultry trade. Um, but on the bottom of these shipping documents, I happened to notice that uh, the importer was not Cargill in Liverpool, although I was pretty certain that's where the stuff was ending up. But uh, it was uh, a P.O. box at the Temple Financial Centre on the tiny, tiny island of Provo in the Turks and Caicos. Um, and as a rather ignorant uh, journalist, it, I might not have thought more about it, except that my sister-in-law happens to be a diving instructor on Provo, and I happened to know it was pretty good hell and had absolutely nothing on it, except lots of tax lawyers. Um, so I rang John and said, what on earth is this all about? How can these big, big ships be going through uh, Turks and Caicos? And he enlightened me. Of course, they weren't going anywhere near it. It was just a paper trail. Um, now, Cargill's a private company. Um, and I spent several months engaging in dialogue with them, uh, and they were terribly, terribly polite, asking them why they would want to root this huge volume of commodities, uh, which were the product of the resources of the people of Brazil, uh, through uh, a tax haven. Um, they didn't want to tell me very much. Uh, we speculated that it could be uh, tax avoidance, it could be transfer pricing, it could be something to do with quotas and tariffs and where they were going to be applied and therefore where Cargill might want these goods owned at a particular point. Uh, or it could be just control of information uh, which might give them a market advantage uh, given what a huge operator they are and how, how much shipments of that sort of volume of a commodity could affect market prices. They don't have to tell me they're a private company. They didn't tell me and that's the end, that was the end of it. But it started me off on this trail, uh, and uh, which sort of ended in this enormous series in The Guardian, which is one of the largest series we've ever done. It's also one of the most expensive, because we had to pay for huge numbers of tax lawyers and specialist accountants to explain what actually is deliberately inexplicable, opaque, uh, and unintelligible to the lay person. Um, <coughs> but, uh, what, what I want to do today, I mean, I focus mostly on the food industry. My aim uh, with the series, in part, was to look at the role of tax havens in the financial crisis and banking sector, but also to try and find ways of bringing home to ordinary readers and the layperson the extent to which we witnessed a flight of capital uh, and to the extent to which these huge transnationals are actively avoiding tax. John's talked a lot about criminality. I was very specifically focusing on corporations, but also legal tax avoidance, and that's quite an important point. We weren't looking at evasion, which I think is not fully understood, but people are aware of it. They think of tax havens as, as a place where criminals can hide money or corrupt governments can siphon off money. But uh, one of the things I think hasn't been fully understood <coughs> is the extent to which companies with these very respectable faces and with huge brochures about corporate social responsibility are avoiding tax through tax havens and it's all legal. It's actually only just legal but it is legal if you've got sophisticated enough tax lawyers and my god are they expensive. Uh, I've been in meetings where I've thought if I open my mouth to ask any other more questions and I spend a minute talking that might be another £5,000. I think I won't ask that question. 
Um, but what, what we've been told for so long by the international financial institutions that the only way for poor companies to develop is to open their markets to foreign investment and allow in imports, go for exports and trade their way out of poverty. Um, but that's all very well and good, but if none or little of the profit from that trade is actually left behind in those countries, of course they're going to stay poor. Um, and I, I think what, what we were seeing when we were going through what these companies were doing is the most extraordinary flight of capital, which John's uh, very eloquently articulated, and that the transnationals are regularly and routinely taking advantage of the resources and cheap labor in poor countries to make their money there. But what they do then is repatriate those profits back home. Um, now, that's, for me, absolutely a new form of colonialism. Um, and I couldn't help but think of the East India Company and the parallels with the sugar trade uh, and the use of resources in uh, poorer countries repatriating profits back home, which was the sort of driving force of uh, capitalism and uh, the Industrial Revolution and the development of the British economy. Um, and of course, in this neoliberal era, if you want to pursue the analogy of empire, it's a privatized form of empire, and it is run by the transnationals. Uh, albeit transnationals heavily supported by uh, governments, economic and foreign policies. Uh, and so much of the commodities trade uh, is, is, is dominated by these big transnationals, largely uh, American-based, because they benefit from subsidies and foreign policies uh, of the Americans. Um, I just want to sort of talk through two examples from the food system uh, that we had. If you want to look at more, it's all on our website, the whole archive of the tax gap series, as it was called, is on the guardian.co.uk. Uh, and there are something like 60 articles there now, including lots of blogs. Uh, and what we found is that it drew in lots of uh, tax experts, some of whom felt very uncomfortable with what was going on in their own industry. Um, frustrated by not being able to look at Cargill's accounts, uh, I set off on bananas. Uh, partly also encouraged by John. Um, and it's a, a very controlled market. There are three transnationals who completely dominate it, Dole, Chiquita, and Fresh Del Monte. And between them, they have more than two-thirds of the total global market. They source most of the bananas from plant, huge industrial plantations in Latin America and uh, West Africa. I chose them because they're mostly U.S. headquartered, uh, which means that and there are actually more requirements for uh, filing of accounts in America. So you've got some chance of seeing a bit more of what's going on. Anyway, with a, with a colleague who's a trained forensic accountant, we crawled through these accounts uh, and calculated that uh, in the five years to 2007, those three transnationals had combined <coughs> global sales of $50 billion. They made $1.4 billion of profit, and yet they paid just $200 million in taxes between them. So that was an effective tax rate of 14%. In some years, those corporations managed to achieve effective tax rates as low as 8%. Now, they're headquartered in the US, where the tax rate, corporate tax rate, is 35%. So they've done some pretty fancy footwork to get their tax bills reduced so far. And what they've done is bundle up parts of their business, such as intellectual property, brands, logos, marketing, insurance, expertise in logistics, and finance, and move them to subsidiaries offshore. And then, of course, they can charge uh, for the use of those uh, so-called 
properties to other parts of the groups that are onshore. Uh, and the way that works is that a banana may be sold by one subsidiary of the group, say from uh, Latin America to another, which is offshore. So the banana being sold from Costa Rica might leave at a price that's little more than the cost of production in Costa Rica. No profit to speak of in Costa Rica, no tax, didn't make any profit down, nothing to pay. But by the time the banana has gone through the circuitous paper trail, being invoiced and charged for all these other things on the way, by the time it ends up in the UK, the price at which the companies are importing it to the UK is pretty close to the price that the, that the companies are then selling it to the retailers. Oh dear, no profit in the UK. So that's why you get these extraordinary figures of them having enormous sales in the US and apparently not making any money. Presto Monte, for example, half its sales in the US in 2005, and yet it managed to lose $35 million in the States. It made a fat profit overseas, but it paid no US tax that year. And in fact, it was given a tax credit of $8 million. Fresh Del Monte, if you go through their C uh, SEC American filings, uh, it's registered in the tax haven of the Cayman Islands, and it has more than 30 subsidiaries in those islands, where of course the corporation tax rate is zero. It also has subsidiaries listed in the tax havens of Gibraltar, Bermuda, Dutch Antilles, and British Virgin Islands. The tax authorities don't let them get completely away with this. It does in its accounts also acknowledge that its tax payments were being challenged by authorities throughout the world. And it listed disputes with the authorities in Brazil, Guatemala, Costa Rica, the UK, the US, Italy, Japan, South Africa, and South Korea. And that was just in its 2007 accounts. But these tax disputes drag on for years and years and years. And I just want to say, I mean, obviously, when we approached them, they pointed out this is all legal. Good business as far as they're concerned. Why pay for tax, more tax than you have to? Uh, this is the same story in all the other transnationals I've looked at. Uh, companies like these make their money from resources, from the land, from the cheap labor of Latin America. But tax for them is not something you return to the countries from which you take. It's just a cost that should be minimized as part of business sense and efficiency. Um, and the other thing I want you to, to, wanted to encourage everyone to look at too is that there's always a double whammy in my experience with this, that where companies are avoiding their responsibilities, avoiding tax in that way, they're nearly always also driving down labor costs. Uh, Del Monte is a fantastic example of this. In 1999, they tried an experiment. They sacked all 4,300 workers on one of their main banana plantations in Costa Rica. And then they re-employed them shortly afterwards on reduced wages with fewer benefits. When they found this worked, they got away with it. They rolled out the model through the rest of Costa Rica. They were followed by the other producers. Uh, and by the end of it, the uh, hours of most workers have been increased by three hours a day at the same time as having their wages cut. Um, and I think it's very important to see this phenomenon of, fl of, of the flight of capital in terms of tax as, a, as only half of a, a phenomenon, which is part of a flight of total corporate responsibility. Um, they drive down the conditions which are bad to start with and avoid paying tax at the other end because all these things are just costs. And I think this kind of there's a cu really cultural shift because it marks the end of a post-war consensus about the role of corporations in society. Uh, they don't see tax as a contribution anymore. 
uh, to the place where you make your money. And nor do they see being an employer as something that creates obligations, such as pensions, health benefits, uh, which, you, which you give back to the workers on whose productivity, whose productivity actually your wealth depends. Uh, these are all obligations which, if you can, you throw back to the state. But then the state's not going to get any tax to pay them. Uh, and I think this is one of the key things for the huge gulf in wealth uh, and gaps in wealth that we've seen uh, over the neoliberal period. Um, I'll be very brief because I think we're, we're running quite late. Um, corporations are taking this a step further. The, the, the traditional way of avoiding tax was transfer pricing. Uh, the latest uh, buzzword is tax-efficient supply chain management. Uh, hideous piece of jargon. Uh, it was uh, an idea, I think, sold originally by Ernst & Young in the mid-1990s, and the first example that I've been able to find of a company taking advantage of this was uh, PepsiCo through Walker's Crisps. Um, and we looked at Walker's for the Guardian uh, partly because uh, it was the first that we could see where they were doing this, and it's been copied by every other major food company that I could see. But also because it was such a very clear example of, of how companies are no longer paying uh, where their economic activity is. Because Walkers is, Walkers is a UK company in almost every sense apart from its American owner. It makes its crisps in Leicester, its sales are promoted by a British footballer, uh, they're still very healthy uh, in terms of sales. The potatoes come from British fields uh, and they go from British fields to British factories employing British and migrant workers, and they're sold from there to British supermarkets and eaten by British consumers. You can't argue that actually they're transnational, so they ought to be you know, allowed not to pay tax here because actually they're doing all this other stuff there. It's, it's such an extraordinarily British operation. But because they restructured the company and transferred ownership of the brand to Switzerland, low tax jurisdiction, tax haven, uh, they've been able to more than half their tax bills. Uh, and all the British operations are now just agents paid on commission, like sort of Avon ladies selling Tupperware or something. Um, and and the, the effect on the UK tax bill has been very stark. So it shrank from £28 million in the year before restructuring uh, to £8 million a couple of years later. Uh, and it, it's an incredibly unequal fight, this, because the UK tax authorities have challenged. The challenge took years and years. Uh, and in the end, they managed to claw back less than one-third of the tax that they would have received if that restructuring <coughs> hadn't taken place. Um, and I wanted also to include that example because I think it's clear that tax havens cause poverty in uh, developing countries. But as we approach this terrible crisis where we've got a huge hole in public finances and we all know cuts in services are, are, are coming and they're going to be savage, we really can't afford not to address this sort of attitude from transnational. Thank you very much, Felicity. Um, we welcome uh, Atia, Atia Waris uh, from the University of Nairobi, uh, where she is a law lecturer. Uh, I believe she's also um, an advocate and a public secretary and what was the other qualification? An arbitrator. So she has many, many qualifications <coughs> to look at this issue of tax justice. I think she's going to give us a PowerPoint. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Thank you very much. Okay, I think it's, it's one of these. That's not you, is it? Okay, here it is. Okay. <laughs> it's a 
I am going to try and address is the, the issue of poverty and development and the link that the two of them can have to tax havens. Both John and Felicity have pointed out numerous numbers of cases. They're talking in trillions and billions. So why don't you think about the $1 a day that people live on? I'm not talking trillions and billions. I'm talking about $1 or $2 a day per person, not only to survive, because $1 a day is the basic survival. Some people don't even have that. A little bit more, get some education, get some health, get some social welfare, get some pension funds uh, coverage. These are the sort of um, expenditures that states in developed countries provide, which are not being provided adequately in developing countries. And I would like to link this to the issue of human rights. Development and poverty are being linked to Millennium Development Goals and to human rights. And everybody is saying that there is a need to provide a certain basic minimum. Well, these basic minimums can actually be pulled out of what would be an, a normal state expenditure. Infrastructure, freedom of movement, health, right to health, education, right to education, social security, the same. Uh, defense, right to security, perhaps. Uh, the right to adequate housing, the right to your civil and political rights, all of these are actually getting covered, but inadequately. So if one looks at then the revenue, and now it's expenditure, where's the money coming from? The tax havens, if they released the information, would provide a lot more tax revenue. And right now, developed countries are going through a financial crisis, which means there is less development aid, not only for non-governmental organizations, civil society that are providing assistance at different levels, but also less money to provide budgetary support. And there are countries in Africa, like Malawi, for example, that have 100% budget aid. None of their budget recurrent expenditure comes from tax resources. And this is critical. This would actually shift the resource angle away from dependence on other countries that are currently suffering to self-sufficiency, accountability, transparency. All of those are critical issues. So do we use tax havens in Africa? Yeah, yes, we do, without a doubt. Uh, not only do multinationals use it, but Africans use it. Local people use it as a conduit. It is a law, it allows, the law allows for the use of tax havens in other countries. But avoiding evading the tax in another country makes it criminal. The secrecy laws prevents one from getting access to the information to prove the criminality of it. These are all critical issues. John already pointed out that countries that do not have strong economies have already been heading towards tax havens. He gave the statistics, I don't need to. In Kenya, well, Mauritius is already a well-known tax haven, but Ghana can be called a tax haven because they've just set up a free port a couple of weeks ago. Right now, Kenya's Ministry of Trade has provided a, a document to Parliament asking for the writing of a bill that would declare all cities in Kenya as industrial trade zones, industrial processing zones that will be tax-free, not only for goods but for services. So this is a growing trend within Africa 
weaker economies are looking for ways to gain revenue and resources. And instead of opening up the exchange of information issues and actually preventing this from taking place further, what's happening is more conduits are being created for the avoidance and the evasion of taxation. These are, this is information um, pretty much all over the net. I, I, you can read it, $480 billion leaving sub-Saharan Africa. Kenya contributes a substantial amount. 30% of GDP is being moved offshore. This is a huge amount. And globally, uh, the Tax Justice Network estimates that 11.5 trillion is being siphoned offshore by, by rich people. And this is amounting to a tax of, of 225 billion. This is not Africa or developing country specific, this is worldwide. And when you're hearing trillion and billion, and I am saying $2 or $1, the, the parallel between the impact that this money could have if it were collected is huge. Well, poverty and development is, is a very critical area to me. I would like to see my country developed. I am Kenyan, incidentally. I would like to see social welfare provisions. Tax havens in one country alone, for example, the Netherlands, showed 100 million euros in tax revenue from developing countries. In Kenya, a very interesting thing happened a few years ago. Uh, Kenya had a court case uh, between Unilever, and Unilever used the arm's length principle and actually paid less tax. What they said was, Unilever Uganda, which is where the goods were being transferred to, were going to pay the tax when they didn't and that Unilever Kenya shouldn't, whereas un the, the tax authorities in Kenya wanted to collect the taxation in Kenya. The interesting thing that arose out of this was because the arm's length principle wasn't being practiced at that point in time openly in, in Kenya, is that they actually turned around and used the OECD rules. And the OECD has guidelines. They have 30 member states. Kenya's not a member. But the trend that is happening is that countries, developing countries are actually picking up on rules and regulations that don't exist in their countries from other places. Now this rule is not even a compulsory law in any of the OECD countries. It's a, it's a suggestion, a regulation. States choose to apply it or not, but you know, Kenya, we like the OECD, we're gonna apply their rules. I, I think it's a little bit off. Uh, somewhere there. Incidentally, the court case never went on appeal, which means it's now a ruling, which brings a, a different uh, twist to the current issue about the OECD guidelines out there right now that are on debate. Does this mean that a country like Kenya that's already stated clearly that where it doesn't have rules and regulations and it's going to apply OECD rules, now should apply the other OECD rules as well? And the space for it and the space for debate on it is, I think, something that uh, needs to be opened up and, and definitely researched. The, the Monterey Consensus specifically stated that in financing for development, tax systems are important for raising domestic revenue, I would say critical. And the Millennium Development Goals have already linked taxation directly to development itself. Oxfam 
a couple of weeks ago said that tax haven crackdowns could deliver $120 billion. Again, these amounts are huge. A very interesting parallel is actually Somalia, uh, which is considered a failed state, incidentally, and apparently $450 million worth of fish value is actually siphoned off. Local fishermen are not compensated, they don't pay tax or royalties. These are international trawling, fish trawling companies that are doing the work of Somalia's waters. And there is no control on these sort of things. 50 billion dollars is what they say will put Africa back into the position it was in before the crisis, whereas some countries actually state that they have actually escaped the financial crisis. Uh, Kenya and Uganda, uh, it seems, have escaped the financial crisis, although I, I sincerely doubt it. Um, five times what the World Bank needs for the UN Millennium Development Goals. We're saying 50 billion, and I've just talked about trillions, and I'll still bring you back to two dollars. The comparison for me is just uh, pretty much uh, mind-blowing. So please pay your taxes, lift up the veils, even if my tax administration is incompetent in my de de developing country, give us the information and put us to strict proof. And uh, please help redistribute. Thank you very much. Speaker Nick Mathiason is the business correspondent of the Observer, the Sunday newspaper, and uh, I know much of his experience in these issues comes from Zambia, isn't it? Ah, true. Yeah. A bit. <laughs> A bit. Okay, well, uh, thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me. I hope what I say is uh, useful in some sense. Um, and Atia drew attention to this $11.5 trillion worth of privately held wealth, which could yield. 225-250 billion dollars worth of tax and I mean that I, I think means that tax actually isn't boring I think numbers like that are very very interesting and um, so I think all this is basically um, the new kind of frontier of the poverty alleviation debate and, and, and again you can't get much more interesting than that I'd like to think but anyway we'll find out in a few minutes um, right okay um, now it's not just tax havens that um, cause poverty. I mean, it's the tax systems themselves. And in, two, in October 2007, I, I went to Zambia, and um, the world commodity boom was in full swing. Um, it, run for, it had run for five years, and um, in that time uh, in Zambia, the uh, copper prices had risen, or in the international markets, had risen by four times, quadrupling. Um, Zambia, second biggest producer of copper in the world, and I wanted to really find out why Zambia wasn't really receiving any tangible benefit from their primary export, accounting for 63% or thereabouts of its exportable income. And um, I'm going to get a bit human interest to start with. Um, I met this guy called Anshel Chibuwe, and he, he was taking a day off work as a turbine operator in one of the biggest copper mines in the world, um, in Konkola, which is in the heart of the copper belt um, near the uh, Congo border. 
uh, in Zambia. And he was um, taking a day off, actually, because he was burying his 20-year-old nephew who died from malaria, 20 years of age, and uh, they couldn't get into a hospital in time. It, uh, the Rosa Potholes, the nearest hospital, was quite some way away. Now, um, uh, Chibue was living um, in a uh, shanty town of 10,000 people, and he was middle class. I mean, his, his wife was a teacher, and you know, he had a kind of a bungalow, but not a mud hut. But um, uh, he, even so, he was looking after two other children other than the three um, he, him and his wife had brought up. And um, HIV AIDS was affecting over a million people and Zambia's population of 11 million people. Um, but in Zambia, it's uh, one of the world's poorest countries. Half of the people are unemployed and life expectancy is 38. Um, so, and he was an intelligent man, and he was saying that education, healthcare, roads had deteriorated in the last decade, and that is half of that decade saw a massive commodity boom in um, Zambia hadn't benefited. And he wasn't a lone voice. I mean, I talked to church and union leaders, opposition politicians, aid agencies, and, and there was one massive question in Zambia, and it was why was this once middle-income country so poor uh, when it was so rich in about two billion pounds worth of copper. Um, and uh, we all benefit from copper. It's used from electrical wiring and phone and internet lines and cars. And um, now, now Zambia's copper mines were privatized at the, in, at the insistence of the International Monetary Fund. Um, and when it was privatized, uh, it was kind of worth a quarter of what it is now. So in that time, it's gone up massively. Um, now, one of the answers to Zambian's question boils down to the terms of its privatisation in which uh, Rothschilds and Clifford Chance, which are probably about a one and a half miles down this road, um, were leading advisors, and that was in around 2001. Um, now, on behalf of the Zambian government, uh, Clifford Chance and Rothschilds parcelled up the mines and smelters, which were losing £500,000 a week after years of underinvestment and uh, low commodity prices. They were uh, passed off into seven entities. Uh, and the government holds a tiny stake in um, all those different entities, and they use those as collateral for new loans. Um, and Zambia's mines are owned by um, massive, massive world companies like um, First Quantum Minerals from Canada, Glencore International, which was founded by um, a controversial trader called Mark Rich, and uh, Vedanta Resources uh, listed UK company owned by a billionaire Indian um, businessman called Anil Agawal. Um, right, and this is the, the real key to um, Zambia's problem. That in 2006, the Zambian government, led by the late President Levi Manawasa, admitted that royalties it received from copper represented just 0.6% of sales, which is little more than £12 million against the £2 billion of copper turnover, which is kind of copper's really small change, I guess. Um, and I talked to this uh, quite a senior government official um, in the mining department, and he said, we sold the mines, but the m mining companies forgot to pay us. Um, um, okay, so uh, when I was in the copper belt, um, this agenda was brewing very kind of interestingly in, in other African governments. I mean, Tanzania were going, was looking at the tax revenue they were, they were getting uh, from um, their... Um, uh, gold and silver, and, and, and DRC Congo, um, they're also uh, looking at the tax tape. Um, now, it became a political issue in Zambia. Um, the, 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 the government, the ruling government, 
was nearly wiped out in the copper belt because the living standards had deteriorated so alarmingly that they forced the mining companies uh, to the renegotiation table. Um, they tried to get the mining companies to raise the royalty rate from 3% um, to, I'm uh, sorry, from 0.6% to 3% and to increase corporation tax on mining firms from 25% to, uh, to 30%. And that process, two years later, came into being um, after Manawasa uh, uh, died, actually. Um, but even so, that means that mining companies are paying slightly less than £100 million pounds a year on a, on a £2 billion pound turnover. Um, and if you compare that to uh, Zambia's very hard-pressed taxpayers, uh, they're actually paying £280 million. Pounds. So, I mean, that's, I, I mean, given that these mining companies are massive and make huge profits, the fact that the uh, public in uh, Zambia are paying more uh, than these mining companies is, is quite interesting. Um, now, um, the, the, the privatisation contracts were very, very um, mysteriously uh, kind of drawn up. Um, they ran over to uh, ran over 20 bulky volumes. Um, they were never presented to Parliament. Um, at the time, the country was run by a disgraced former President Chiluba. And Chiluba, who is still, uh, who's been gravely ill for some time, was convicted in a London court for siphoning off tens of millions of pounds. Um, civil servants alleged that MPs received advances on expenses as the vote came to a head. And there's widespread, widespread suspicion that government officials benefited greatly from the sale. Um, um, and then there are people such as um, a, a fantastic academic who um, takes his life into his own hands called uh, Professor John Lungu uh, at the Zambia's Copper Belt University uh, who said that, who um, has been kind of doing a lot of work on this issue and he basically said that the World Bank told the government that some of the mines had to be sold um, because they just had seven years life left in them but um, nine years later they, they're still going strong in fact production at the time I was there was up quite, quite markedly. Um, now, Zambia is a peaceful country, and it's not riven by tribal rivalries, um, yet there's tangible resentment at the arrival of Chinese workers on the back of copper production agreements between the two countries. But the real root of anger is Zambia's inescapable poverty um, set against the mining firm's virtually tax-free profits. Um, I mean, the latest twist of the Zambian story is that the government is battling to minimise um, unemployment to miners who are being laid off as the world economy contracts. Um, and it wants to up its shareholdings in mining companies um, to ensure that they're not closed down. Um, but um, uh, as things stand, I, I, um, I don't think the mining companies are going to let them up their uh, shareholdings. Um, but while it might not be uh, tax havens that specifically keep Zambia poor, the lack of revenues from its primary resource have, have severely reduced the potential for this country to climb out of poverty. And um, that's my lot. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Nick, and uh, thank the panel generally for uh, a, a really powerful presentation, I think, of the case. Answering our question, it's fairly clear that from the panel's answers, tax havens cause poverty. Uh, it may well be that there are others who have questions on this point that haven't been raised and which will challenge some of this because we've had a pretty uniform point of view, I think, presented here. Very powerful.
question and then I'll ask the panel. which, as you say rightly, has taken on the issue, um, largely, I think, because of the pressure that uh, the Guardian put on the G20 presidency to address, finally address this issue. Will anything concrete happen? The, the only thing that will move this on is enhanced international cooperation. We live in a world of international financial, globalised financial markets. Capital is wholly mobile now. We must now recognise that if we are to protect the sovereignty, if you want to use that word, of tax regimes which are entirely national, um, uh, and, and rightly so because of the democratic need uh, for accountability, uh, we now need not to move to a situation where companies, countries compete with one another uh, in a race to the bottom, inevitable race to the bottom on tax policies, but actually cooperate. And now is the time when we need to move to more cooperative frameworks. The, the problem is there is an institutional gap here. There isn't actually a global international tax organisation or anything equivalent to, 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 to meet this. And the UN Tax Committee is hopelessly uh, uh, under-resourced. The OECD is absolutely the wrong organisation to tackle this. Their uh, politics, internal politics, are dominated by tax haven interests. Austria, Luxembourg, Switzerland, United Kingdom, United States, and others block uh, moves towards effective, uh, really effective information exchange. Um, so there is an institutional gap here which must now be filled. Um, that's what, what, you know, my answer to you. I, I think the only way in which we can move this on um, is by developing and generating a massive political momentum to force G20 to carry this one forward. Um, and that political momentum will not come from within political parties or political, uh, within parliaments uh, because, to be honest, too many political parties are in the pay of the elites who benefit from this process. This is a time for a peasant's revolt. Um, and this country knows all about peasant revolts because most of our revolutions originate from tax issues, including the peasant's revolts and, of course, the English Revolution, the Civil War. Um, and that's my role. And my, the Tax Justice Network is... is absolutely upfront about this. My role and the role of my colleagues at the Tax Justice Network is to generate so, such a huge civil society pressure on politicians that we can no longer put the issue back in the box and ignore it, which has been the case for the last 80 years 
since the League of Nations tried to tackle this, um, and, and, and put it right at the centre of the global agenda where it belongs. This, in my opinion, is the biggest fault line in the globalisation process. Um, to answer the question about uh, taxation is theft, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> I live in a democratic country. Taxation is the heart of the democratic process. In this country, we fought revolutions, we toppled governments, we cut the heads of people, um, that is, we committed regicide um, in order to assert parliamentary democracy over how money is raised and how it is spent. It lies at the heart of the democratic process. Um, and I think that it, that is right. That's where it should be. Um, so, um, yes, if you want to have any kind of democratic system of government, ta tax lies at the heart of it. It is the heart of the social contract. You ask, should we... Uh, should it be, uh, should democracy be exported? No, I, I, I think democracy is something that was built from within. It's a long and slow process, but tax is a crucial part of that process. Um, as for bullying Liechtenstein, very emotive language there. Um, the point about Liechtenstein is, is that Liechtenstein and others have used the term privacy for a very long time, protecting privacy. Actually, what they're doing is they're protecting criminality. And what the Germans did, but others have not dared to do so far because the French government, the British government, and the United States government are sitting on exactly the same data set, is that as many criminals, very high level criminals we know in France and in Britain who are hiding behind Liechtenstein accounts, why are the British government officials who have access to that information not pursuing these people? Why are they not on the front page of the Observer newspaper? I know, you know, I know you're as interested in this story as I am. And finally, <laughs> finally, I've very touched upon this, the role of political elites. You're absolutely right. Political elites and business elites are up to their eyeballs in this, not just in developing countries, but also in developed countries. Um, and that brings us back to the role of the tax justice network. We are a full head-on assault on this whole unjust process where political elites hide behind these very criminal places, or criminals, places that offer criminal facilities and create a criminogenic environment. We are a full frontal assault upon that. I don't think we need necessarily to engage as what Tyler did and as Win Stanley and others in the English Revolution did, that is violence, but I think we must now, at a global level, form the coalitions of trade unions, NGOs, faith movements and all others concerned with economic justice to put this at the front of the agenda. That was pretty comprehensive. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I think you're right. What I see from G20 is you know, a change of mood uh, in terms of detail, nothing that's actually going to touch any of the things I was talking about in terms of corporate avoidance as opposed to evasion. Um, but I think, I think you get, I mean, there are precedents for huge cultural shifts, and I actually think the shift on attitudes to taxation, particularly by corporations, is quite recent in, in sort of big picture terms. It's sort of, it is, it, there is a time 20, 30 years ago when big companies didn't try and avoid tax on that scale, the, uh, uh, and, and there is a great power to naming and shaming, um, and, uh, and I think you build change slowly from all sorts of things and, and John's being over generous to the Guardian I mean you know, the Prime Minister was kind enough to say he had been influenced by it 
but I mean, obviously, we were building on work that uh, campaign groups have been doing. Uh, and that's the case if you look back at the Factory Acts, where it was considered perfectly acceptable for employers to kill people or not to have any safety in factories. I mean, those kind of things changed because there was a coalition and there, was a, there were union movements of the church movements, all the things we've talked about, but also that the, there was a, a movement by ordinary people, these things became unacceptable. And I think there is a tremendous power in that, and, and obviously the press has a, has a role. Period 
taxes were collected but were spent only on the, the ruling elite of that point in time. Once uh, independence came, the structures in place for social, uh, um, for health and education had been only specific to a certain uh, percentage of the population. Immediate independence resulted in an immediately overstrained uh, resource. They then used policies that, you know, this is an alien issue, we cannot provide social services. But taxation continued. The ruling elite and the political elite in African countries use this as the reason that allows them to continue to collect taxation but not use it for the people. Now, if I, if I come back to the, the, the what I think is a, a philosophical issue, Africa has a serious philosophical problem here. If you go to any part of Latin America, people are left-wing or right-wing, we're Marxists, we're communists. If you come to Africa, people do not decide which political part of the divide they're on. You will not be able to come up to an African, and, and I would challenge uh, anybody to tell me if people back home really can turn around and say, I am left-wing or right-wing. I'm going to only vote for this party. We don't have allegiances like that because we don't believe in those philosophies. Those philosophies also have the social welfare connotations attached to it, which again, we don't link back. So we continue to pay taxes because we'll get caught by the revenue authority, not because we want to pay the taxes, and we will avoid it if we can. So the philosophical issue to translate it into Africa has a certain problem in a lot of places. And if you throw that in with people who just have never heard of the revenue authority or collection of taxes and there's no roads in the area, well, then they will not pay taxes and you would have to really find a very good reason why. Can I just full of 
um, account hold, uh, for, full of, of rich people's accounts and gave it to the um, German authorities in return for a fee, just like sent a seismic wave through, um, through Germany. And then we had the case of um, UBS um, uh, being caught um, doing um, highly illegal and amazingly aggressive tax evasion strategies for its um, rich um, uh, account holders, um, which is um, again like set uh, came about when Obama was uh, campaigning about the fact that there were something like um, 28,000 companies um, based in one single uh, office in the Cayman Islands. Um, and you put that together with the fact that we're in such a dire economic situation um, that this is a golden pot that um, is available to the world to bail it out of a, an awful economic situation. So um, while the, the it, uh, developments may be uh, quite slow, I think there is a, um, an agenda from America and Germany and to some extent France to actually get to grips with uh, tax havens. Now, I think interestingly with um, Gordon Brown disappearing down the plug hole, I mean, whether an incoming uh, conservative government really wants to gra grapple with uh, this agenda is, is moved. So I can envisage quite uh, uh, strong um, debates in Europe and, and beyond on this one. So, I mean, it will be a quite a torturous process, but I think there will be some more greater pressure internationally. Um, but uh, the gentleman was kind of right in, because I, I, I went to Liechtenstein, and if you climb towards the castle where the, where the prince lived, there's a little um, wooden sign that um, basically translated in, into English says, only God can see me. Uh, and, and, and that is pretty much true, because no one can see into uh, a Liechtenstein account holder, or no, it could, didn't used to be able to. But since that incident in, uh, with the uh, uh, LG, uh, Liechtenstein bank official happened, I mean, rich people have been moving their money to uh, Dubai and Singapore. So uh, to what extent uh, global tax investigators and governments have the power to, to intervene when we saw in the recent G20, it was China who was holding out very strongly, not, 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 uh, for, uh, not for a statement to be made on, on tax havens. So, um, I mean, that it is all to play for, and a very sensitive uh, and delicate issue, but, um, so, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I get a lot of questions now. Uh, we were scheduled to stop at eight, I think, but uh, if, if there's the will here to continue, and if there's the willingness here to continue, perhaps we can go on a little longer, because we did start at eight. Uh, you had a question already.
is much more qualified on lots of things than so the others. Uh, the, but what, 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 what's the future for small tax havens? I mean, I think, I think there's one, there, there are two really important questions. Obviously, if you're closing down tax havens and these offshore financial centres have been encouraged to develop in a way in which they become completely dependent on tax avoidance and evasion, uh, the governments, I mean, many of these jurisdictions are, are, are British, I mean, the, the government has an obligation to actually see them through any period of transition. But the, but the people who benefit most from these small tax havens are not the people in the tax havens. The, the sort of money that John's talking about, the trillions, absolutely dwarf the money that the people who actually live on those tax havens make from them. Um, and there is surely room to actually clamp down on the avoidance and evasion and claw back that money from the rich people and the huge multinationals who are benefiting and leave enough behind to, for those tax havens to develop in a different way. Can, can I add to that? As a small islander <laughs> and as a development economist and as a bit of a historian as well, that many of the arguments that are put by some of these regions and small islands, including my island of Jersey, but not tackling this because of the impact on the local economy, are absolutely the same arguments that were put in the British Parliament in the late 18th century for not tackling Liverpool and Bristol and a whole host of other seaports that were making their money from trading in slaves. You're going to put all sorts of shipwrights and sail makers and chain makers and all sorts of other providers of victuals for these ships out of business. And this delayed the tackling the slave trade for decades because of the effect of parliamentary pressure that these very insidious but nonetheless important groups were able to exert through the parliamentary processes. In the case of my island of Jersey, actually hosting a tax haven has, or the hosting an offshore financial centre, has crowded out all the pre-existing industries. The agriculture's gone, the tourism has gone, the light manufacturing industry has gone because they can't compete in the labour markets because lawyers, bankers and so on earn disproportionately higher than people working in the, financial, in, in the, in the tourism sector, the catering sector and, and agriculture. So in economic terms, these places have actually been wrecked by hosting tax haven business. I think it's, um, and a very small minority of people benefit. And this is something that journalists can, can and should bring out because when you go to these places, Many journalists are struck by the fact that many local people, indigenous people, can't afford to live there any longer because the housing markets are astronomically expensive. Jersey house prices, for example, are more expensive than London. Most Jersey people who don't work in the banking sector can't afford to live there, so their young people leave. I expect the same applies to many. In fact, I know the same applies to many Caribbean islands. So as a development strategy, I know that many of these places have become extraordinarily wealthy but many of the indigenous people have not and end up being very, very poor indeed because they can't afford the housing, they can't afford the high cost of living. Um, so I, but I agree with what Felicity just said. I think the British government, let's face it, the Queen is head of state of many of these places, has a duty to help many of the Caribbean islands in particular because it was the Foreign and Commonwealth Office that encouraged many of these places to become tax havens in the beginning, in the, at the outset. And why did they do that? Well, we know that in many cases they did that because they did not want to find the British government having to pay for these territories in the same way that the French government has had to pay for their dom toms. I'm with you. I'd like to pick up a point there and sort of translate it into something. Because 
regardless of what you suggested, John. Tax Justice Network is a civil society. It represents the best in civil society. It's got a cause. It's a popular cause, I think. It's a cause which appeals, yes, to all those who believe taxation should be fair and it should be, in fact, global under conditions where we have global challenges. Now, what I would ask is, there are plenty of antecedents for non-state authorities to collect taxes. Churches have collected taxes in the past, and they still do in some countries, uh, by voluntary contribution, but it's not quite voluntary. <laughs> Civil society also needs to have these kinds of payment understandings. I believe you've got the moral authority, and you can gain the moral authority, to charge taxes to the companies and corporations that you name and shame. I'd like to see you shift to becoming a tax-gathering organization. <laughs> 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 Berserker from the Tax Justice Network sitting in the back there, but can I just say, Martin, that one of the ideas that I would love to move forward on, um, and I sat in Paris a few years ago talking about this with a guy from the OECD, a Brit, um, working at the OECD, he has been pushing me for years, will you create an organisation called Tax Inspectors Sans Frontières? Yes. And well, I mean, the idea of having a tax inspector sans frontier was just too delightful for words. And there are loads of tax inspectors who would love to do that, yeah. who would love to go off to help our colleagues in Africa do exactly what you're talking about. By the way, I come from a small town in Buckinghamshire, Chesham, most famous for the Lowndes family. And the Lowndes family made their money because old man Lowndes was Walpole's chancellor back in the days of, uh, I don't know, in the 18th century. And at that time, tax collection was farmed out. It's, this guy made a fortune, because of course, farming out meant you get a percentage of the take, and you hand over to the government, whatever the government asks you, you take the rest. <laughs> I, I don't particularly want to go back to that, idea, but I do like the idea of tax inspectors sans frontier, because in a world of globalized corporations, where it is incredibly difficult for the Zambias of this world to train up highly paid, highly experienced people who, as soon as they become effective, are poached by the opposition and join the companies. Very difficult for them to retain them, but that expertise does exist. It exists in America, it exists in Canada, and they would love to become part of the development process. I think that would be a great, uh, a great And I think you would find some of the wealthiest people in the world who would be sympathetic. I mean, we think of Ted Turner's funding of the United Nations, and, 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 and we think of Bill Gates and his foundation and so on. These are people 
who are so wealthy they don't worry about taxability. Indeed, they would but, like but, others. Yes, to but Martin, uh, Microsoft made most of its money by not paying taxes, or a large portion of its yeah, money yeah, by absolutely. not. You know, and, and I think this is the thing: is that the philanthropist who thinks I'm better than governments at distributing wealth, and that's the argument I've heard over and over from the banking sector. We've done a huge amount of work on these structured finance departments that are nothing more than tax avoidance factories. And what they say when you talk to them, as particularly whistleblowers who sort of suddenly change their mind because the whole thing's collapsed around their ears, they say, well, I, I really feel now that there's not much money, I, you know, it's not right. But while Gordon Brown was spraying money around on these social projects, I mean, I just didn't see why we should be paying taxes. I mean, who are these people to decide what the priorities should be? Um, the other thing is if tax, I mean, what is it? Maximum five years to regulatory cap capture. So if Tax Justice Network starts charging, I reckon he's got five years before he becomes corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just like to say on, the, on what, what about the tax havens, I mean, um, in Antigua we're seeing the unravelling of Sir Alan Stanford's uh, bank, um, allegedly for, uh, you know, a, he's running a giant Ponzi scheme, although he dis disputes that, but that island is, is immensely insecure at the moment, mainly because of its role as an offshore, <coughs> it obviously grew hugely, but it's now falling away significantly, and I mean, there can be kind of aid to islands, and, and, and I mean, there's some people got an idea of um, letting um, Caribbean um, people into America, for instance, in a much easier way so that they can send remittances back. I mean, there are kind of ways around um, offsetting the damage um, that could be done to them if they're losing their offshore status. Uh, can I just, there's one question kind of gone a little unanswered. Sorry, um, somebody at the back talked about a the, the philosophical problems of, of taxation and the contradiction. I mean, this is a huge contradiction, uh, without a doubt. It was only until, I think, a year ago that, for example, financing the development, uh, the initiative actually for the first time put the issue of taxation on the table. So uh, unfortunately, till today, and, and th at least this is changing with efforts from a lot of people, until uh, very recently, development was always seen as something being spearheaded from the outside in. It was always thought that they would, that, that certain countries were just too poor and it was impossible. And the the really the interesting thing that is coming out for what are considered poor developing countries in the current financial crisis in developed countries is that it is actually airing the revenue that exists and the taxation that exists, and I think it's it's really critical that we, we force the issue and we keep it up there and we maintain it. So yes, you're absolutely right. I'll take one more set of questions. There's three more questions. One here.
Okay, if I, if I might, um, first of all, on the issue of Bermuda. Um, very complex for small islands to find new development strategies. You are a captive state. Um, in just a few days' time, I'll be meeting Michael Foote. For those of you who don't know who Michael Foote is, Michael Foote is the uh, official that has been uh, appointed by the United Kingdom government to review the role of all of Britain's tax havens. We have an opportunity to see him uh, in ne next week, uh, and the main point I would put to him in this review is that it, it is not his job to help the tax havens to strengthen their financial services activities as he has laid out in his so-called progress report 10 days ago. It is his job, I think, to help the British tax havens to find the plan B. In other words, to move forward beyond their role as tax havens um, and find um, sustainable um, activities which are not abusive, which have a moral base and play to their comparative advantages. Um, and that will be my main preoccupation. I think the British government, um, particularly in the Caribbean, has a duty to play, uh, and in the Atlantic, in the case of uh, uh, Bermuda, has a duty to help with this process because they have encouraged and indeed, in some cases, forced some of the islands down this process and have been, dare I say it, absolutely... Um, They've ignored their responsibilities in terms of regulation and looking after the long-term interests. And I think that's particularly the case in the Turks and Caicos. Because of those of you who are familiar with the recent Foreign uh, uh, Select Committee inquiry into what's been happening in the Turks and Caicos, there you have a pattern of corruption, political corruption, of bullying, of intimidation of local people, uh, which has gone on for years and years and years under the complete watchful blind eye of the Foreign Office, a dereliction of duty. So I'm, I, you know, I, I think that the next process must be to help these islands, your islands, my island, find the plan B. Um, but that doesn't mean necessarily we have a right to exist, any more so than a cold town has a right to exist when its coal reserves disappear or when suddenly a car company leaves and it's a single car, car firm. You know, we can't take it for granted that we have comparative advantages which will attract legitimate investment and create legitimate employment. That's an important issue we must bear in mind. Richard, on the issue of country-by-country uh, -country reporting, I am absolutely convinced that if there's a single, one single measure that we could pursue to tackle global poverty, the country-by-country -country reporting standard would do more than any other measure I can think of to release the funding that is required in developing countries to not only fund their anti-poverty but also to strengthen their, their accountability, their governance generally. And I think one important issue that we haven't perhaps touched upon as much as we should have is the link between taxation and representation. Important. Again, not in this country, but in another country, famously went to war on this issue of no taxation without representation. In far too many places, including this country, we now have representation without taxation for far too many of the elites. But I think we now need to make it quite clear that um, taxation has a very, very important part to play in making the political elites accountable to ourselves. Finally, on the issue of the OECD blacklist, grey list and white list, OECD have failed yet again to come up with, any, with something which makes sense. Mm -hmm. And to understand why that is the case, you have to recognize that the OECD is the OECD. 
and its membership includes some of the most powerful tax haven economies in the world. Um, so the absence of Delaware, the absence of London, the inclusion of um, some rather minor states in the blacklist, um, the fact that Jersey, Guernsey and the Isle of Man were whitelisted as cooperative jurisdictions when I'm afraid they are anything but cooperative, um, shows that the politics of the OECD cannot be relied upon to, to, to carry forward objective agenda here. Uh, the good news is that the Tax Justice Network will later this year be producing its own rankings of secrecy jurisdictions, and those rankings will not be suffer from the politics of the OECD. <laughs> I mean, John's knowledge is, is so much deeper than mine, um, uh, so I'm going to be slightly frivolous. Can't you charge all these financial... Uh, we the dealers an exit charge as they leave from you. Millions, a pot of billions that you use for development. I, I, you know, I'm a, journalists and critics they tend to be rather bad playwrights, and I don't actually have the answers. Uh, country by country reporting, which of course you've been campaigning for that and persuaded me of it. Um, and the OECDM and the politics of that list were absolutely extraordinary, and particularly the politics of China's position on it, not wanting Hong Kong and Macau. But I was told that that was completely... The, I mean, China loses so much more than it gains from tax havens and, and foreign direct investment that, you know, extraordinarily, these companies don't seem to make any profit in China, even though they've got these huge operations and so many of the things that the joint ventures people are buying through offshore tax havens. Uh, and I was told privately that the Chinese were extremely aware of that, uh, but they wanted, they wanted movement from France. It was all a bit of political gaming. Perhaps, I mean, and this 